When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. An Erio's original. Calling all Alarmy members. For our upcoming holiday episode, we want to hear about your biggest holiday disasters, comedy of errors, or family feuds. Call the Erios hotline at 626-604-6262 and leave us a one-minute voicemail with your biggest holiday drama. The team here at The Alarmist will then unpack your disaster and figure out who we think is to blame. No person or concept is safe from being sent to The Alarmist jail. It's your chance to settle your family feuds once and for all. Dial the Erios hotline at 626-604-6262 and remember to keep your voicemail snappy at one minute. Phone lines close on November 20th at 11.59 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Professor Jacob Mundy. Professor Mundy is an associate professor in Peace and Conflict Studies and Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies programs at Colgate University in Hamilton, New York. He has conducted field and archival research in Algeria, Libya, Morocco, Tunisia, and Western Sahara. Professor Mundy is the author of several books, including Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution, and the book Libya. Let's hear what he has to say 
about the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103. Hi, Professor Mundy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. So there's so much context to learn behind what led to Pan Am Flight 103 uh, at the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 and, and why the terrorist attack was pinned on Libya um, that we would like to better understand uh, after our uh, initial episode. Could you start off by giving us some history on Libyan-American relations, maybe um, back to when oil was discovered in Libya in, in 1959? Yeah, well, Libyan... U.S. relations did a quite a turnaround in the, the post-colonial period. Libya was arguably the U.S.'s closest ally in the Middle East and North Africa up until the Gaddafi Revolution in 1969. Libya was home to one of the largest overseas U.S. military bases. The United States had been heavily invested in developing the independent Libyan state, uh, the United States was, because of the relationships that developed during World War II, when North Africa was one of the first foreign fronts where U.S. soldiers went to, the United States had developed deep relationships uh, with the regime that was created after independence in 1951. Um, you had Libyans going to graduate schools in the U.S., you know, creating a new professional classes, things like, things like that. So Libya and the United States were very entangled. Um from the 1950s into the, the 1960s in many ways. And oil was a really important aspect of all of this. Uh, Libya was producing as much oil as Saudi Arabia up until the 1970s. So it was arguably a cornerstone of U.S. Cold War strategy, especially to redevelop Europe after World War II. Uh, and then you have the, the Gaddafi revolution in, in 1969, which totally changes the relationship forever. First of all, what led to the coup in 69? And how does that change relations? It's surprising because, you know, Libya was one of the most rapidly developing countries in the 1960s because of the oil wealth that began to come online during that decade. Um, so it was known that Libya had oil, but it took a while for the, the reserves to be exploited. And then what you have in the 1960s is um, massive social dislocation. So you have a country that is uh, at independence in 1951, considered one of the poorest in the world, one of the least uh, populated, given the percentage of desert uh, that the country is, and one of the least urbanized. And then within a decade, it's a total 180 in terms of what's going on in Libya. Rapid urbanization, especially the city of Tripoli. Uh, where you have all the jobs, the wealth, the foreign interests, you know, the British, the Americans, and uh, and you still have remnants of uh, Italian settlers who are still living in Italy, I'm sorry, in Libya in the 1960s. Um, so on the one hand, there, there was these positive developments, but on the other hand, the oil wealth was allowing the monarchy, the Senussi monarchy, to really centralize power. Uh, so the uh, the federal system, the United, what was called the United Kingdom of Libya, this tripartite, three-region um, sort of system was abolished. The, you know, the king began just ruling absolutely with little regard for elected officials, parliament, things like that. Elections were sort of thrown out the window. Um, and then in kind of the broader Middle East context, um, you have a lot of countries are switching from these monarchical regimes, some of which are just clearly implanted by um, exiting, you know, British or British or French imperialists, and replacing them with uh, military-led Republican nationalist regimes. So in uh, Egypt, in Iraq, 
in other countries, this is more the norm. The idea is that monarchies are on their way out um, and that revolutionary socialist republics are on the way in. So this also fits with those kinds of trends. The people who came to power in Libya in 1969 were very much inspired by the kind of social political revolution that was going on in Egypt under Nasser the previous decade. Um, you know, Nasser had successfully stood up to the French, the British, and the Israelis during the Suez crisis. Um, but there was also the 1967 Arab-Israeli war in which uh, populations in Libya didn't feel that the Libyan monarchy had done enough to support the Palestinians and the, and the Arab front against Israel. So the coup plotters really just took advantage of what many people assumed at the time was a foregone conclusion that the Senussi monarchy wasn't going to last much longer. And there certainly wasn't, uh, it wasn't a popular uprising. It was just a military coup where uh, people took power in the king's absence. And there weren't, there weren't protests in the street and not much was done. Um, there were efforts behind the scenes, um, covert efforts to restore the Senussi monarchy. Um, uh, the stories there are really kind of hilarious and how, you know, kind of ham-fisted <laughs> these, these schemes are to like, you know, bring back the Senussi monarchy. But the the revolutionary Arab Republic ideal sticks in Libya under the Gaddafi regime. Um, and then going forward, there's a there's an effort to kind of really massively um, transform uh, the kind of socio-political architecture of Libya in a way that, you know, effectively no other state had done before. And this eventually becomes called the Jamaharia, the state of the masses that Gaddafi creates. So at what point, and for what reason does the United States declare Libya a state sponsor of terrorism? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it takes several years for this to happen, but immediately one of the, one of the things that is in like the the American documents surrounding the coup in Libya in 1969 is that the United States isn't really surprised this happened. The United States doesn't really view this as a huge geopolitical shift in any way, even though a major oil producer has now sort of gone to the other side um, and things like that. The U.S. was already sort of pulling out its military presence anyway and shifting to, to other parts of the world. Um, what they didn't like was the pro-Palestinian rhetoric of the, the Gaddafi regime, and they worried that you'd, ha you'd basically have a country that was going to uh, exacerbate the ongoing tensions in the Arab-Israeli dispute. So the year 1969 is critical because it's between the, the Six-Day War in 1967 and the, the even bigger October War in 1973. And during this period, it's, it's critical to remember the Suez Canal was shut down, that Egypt had shut down the Suez Canal in protest of what had happened in 1967. And in many ways, that should have improved Libya's geopolitical standing because its oil was on the other side of the Suez Canal. Right, uh, but it didn't. It didn't really work out that way because what happened was Libya began to back uh, opponents, rebel groups, of um, well, supporting the Palestinians, supporting the IRA, supporting you know various unknown groups like the Western Saharan Independence Movement, fighting against Morocco, things like that. So it was this uh, training and support that Libya increasingly gave to. Um, groups that the United States viewed as antagonistic to its interests that increasingly put Libya on this track towards confrontation with the United States. And eventually they imposed sanctions. Um, can you help us understand, um, you know, 
why they were imposed uh, on Libya in the early 80s and uh, how did that how did they affect Libyans? Well, yeah, this idea of sanctions as a way of isolating and deterring state sponsorship of terrorism is kind of a new a new idea that gets rolled out during this period. And Libya becomes a really crucial cast, test case for all of this. Um, there was, you know, this is b- well before, you know, the events of 9-11. So there's not a quite understanding of how do we, how do we directly confront terrorism, which became the key issue that the United States is dealing with from 9-11 onward. But, but how do we deny their access to financial resources and things like that? But part of the, problem here is there's an ideological illusion that U.S. policymakers at the time in the Reagan administration and the, the CIA, that they can't imagine a world in which this, the Soviets aren't behind everything <laughs> that, that, that they disagree with. Um, so there, there's always a feeling that, well, it, you know, the truth be told, in the 1970s, Libya was the largest purchaser of Soviet weapons. So it was very clear that Libya had realigned in some ways, at least in terms of its defense spending. Uh, towards uh, the Soviet Union and increasingly was detached from the U.S. military industrial complex in that sense. And then the, uh, though Libya still continued to buy French arms and things like that. But the, the convention among, conviction among policymakers was this idea that the, the Soviets are really behind Palestinian terrorism or IRA terrorism or things like that. So they're, they're looking for ways to, um, again, it's the proxy war context of the Cold War that you get all this. So they're looking for ways to uh, undermine uh, mm. these bases of support for terrorism that they view as emanating from the Soviet Union and being channeled through, you know, this is kind of before the concept of rogue states is really formed, that Libya becomes the, the quintessential case study of the rogue state, right? The idea that uh, Libya is so at odds with international conventions and things like that. Um, and, and the idea is that post-Vietnam, right, the, the American public is very reluctant to see um, the use of military force abroad, particularly for murky conflicts that don't really seem to have a clear national interest. Um, now, the United States obviously does eventually use military force uh, in Libya, sort of this background of, of building tensions and you know skirmishes over the air and the Mediterranean Sea and in different kinds of territorial claims and things like that. Uh, but the Reagan administration uh, is trying to find different tools uh, to to wage conflict in the international systems. And so sanctions become one of the one of those primary tools. And it, today, it's one of the, the leading tools of, you know, American statecraft, uh, particularly given the central position that the United States has in the international financial system, you know, whether it's sort of through IBAN or the dollar dominance in the world and things like that. In 1986, the U.S. bombs targets in Libya, including Gaddafi's military headquarters, and uh, several of his family members were among the 37 killed. Why does the U.S. do this? Well, this is um, the tensions are are building more and more. And the Reagan administration is convinced that uh, Libya is behind a number of terrorist attacks, including one at a discotheque in Berlin uh, near a U.S. military base. Where there, there, the thought was that this is this is Gaddafi trying to hit American targets. So, the raid on Libya in 1986, and the, there's this whole discourse of you know that Gaddafi represents a mad dog that needs to be um, kind of reined in. 
But there's also a general, a more general sense that the United States is facing a, a multiplicity of crises in the Middle East. You have the Iran-Iraq War, the Iranian Revolution before that in 1979. You got the Soviets invading Afghanistan in 1979 as well. Um, the Saudi, the Grand Mosque in, in Mecca is held by terrorist groups in 1979. And so the United States is really struggling uh, to it you know, affect the Middle East in some way in the Reagan administration. You know, one of the biggest conventional explosions that ever happened was in Beirut in the early 1980s where American peacekeepers were were targeted, right? So the United States is uh, does not appear to have much ability to kind of affect what's going on in the Middle East. And then Libya, the Libyan case kind of shows up as one where uh, maybe the U.S. can do something and, and show that, it you know, it's still still can influence the situation, particularly through um, what, at least at the time, was considered more precise use of military force, as opposed to like the, the massive expeditionary warfare that Vietnam re- represented. And to remember, there had already been confrontations between uh, American fighter jets and Libyan fighter jets over the Gulf of Sidra in the, the Mediterranean. So it was already kind of established in the American political discourse that Libya was this problematic state. Uh, and this even begins to manifest in pop culture in terms of like Top Gun or Iron Eagle, sort of, you know, sort of the height of, you know, 1980s action films and things like that, where Libya is very clearly the the state that is kind of like hidden behind it, you know, whereas the new Top oh. Gun is, is about Iran. Yeah. Kind of taking it back to Pan Am Flight 103, uh, authorities, um, they, they never said that they found evidence to support um, the Iranian Palestinian conspiracy that was behind uh, that some believed. Yeah, yeah. Um, now it's it's been a durable theory. It's uh, there was a, the father of one of the uh, passengers on the flight has has really believed that Iran was responsible for the attack and 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 that the U.S. didn't pursue this angle because uh, they didn't want to blame Iran. And, and, and I've read that this is because Americans were negotiating over hostages in, in, in Lebanon. Uh, can you tell us more about the Lebanon hostage, hostage crisis and what's behind this theory, I guess? Yeah, I mean, another way in which the United States was was being viewed as um, being pushed around in the Middle East was a series of hostage issues, first originating in the, the 1979 Iranian Revolution and the uh, the taking of American hostages there. That led to a, an effort by the Carter administration actually to free the hostages using a kind of special forces mission that went totally haywire. Um, and several helicopters, you know, were lost in the desert. And it was just a it was just a boondoggle. And um, out of that, we get, you know, central command and, and special forces and things like that. But at the time, it was viewed, you know, as a, as a total disaster. Um, but so hostages become this sort of really kind of a thorn in the U.S.'s side. And during the the civil war in Lebanon, where eventually you get uh, Israeli intervention, supposedly against Palestinians, but an Israeli occupation of southern Lebanon, the United States enters as a peacekeeping force. Uh, but there as well, you get hostage takings as a a key tactic uh, being used to try to get concessions from the U.S. Um, so yeah, hostages are a part of the, the mix and the, the big concern. Hostages in some way were what helped bring Reagan to power in the first place because Carter was viewed as, as weak on foreign policy issues. Um, and so that Iran could kind of push around Carter was you know, one of the reasons that you know, we needed a strong cowboy like, like Reagan to, right. to come, in, come into power and things like that. 
But the uh, one of the other reasons that's critical is why people started looking at Iran initially in terms of the Lockerbie bombing was that you uh, so basically U.S. Uh, battleship in the Persian Gulf had shot down an Iranian civilian plane um, in the 1980s during the Iran-Iraq War. Uh, there were threats that uh, oil tankers would be would be basically targeted as a part of um, this ongoing war between Iran and Iraq. And this was a war that the United States cynically supported both sides. Overtly, we gave a lot of weapons to Saddam Hussein, who notoriously used you know chemical weapons against Iran and his own Kurdish populations. And secretly, through you know Ali North and all of that, the Iran Contra scandal, we gave weapons to to Iran. Partially because, again, it was a very cynical strategy to make the war last as long as possible to wear both sides out. Because this was, you know, the U.S. couldn't intervene directly, so they're trying to find ways of like how do we, how do we control the Middle East and affect wow. the situation there? Yeah, it's desperately cynical. Um, and so, so as the two sides begin to really um, wear out, they begin looking at tanker traffic as a as a key kind of like way to like really inflict pain on each other and that's when the united states military intervenes in the gulf in what's called the tanker wars and that they basically uh oil tankers are re-flagged as u.s uh, merchant vessels um and they're given escorts by u.s tankers so it's a very it's a very tense moment um that's often overlooked because of the even more dramatic events of the first gulf war in 1990 but the uh, as a part of all of this a u.s um warship thought it was being targeted by an iranian uh airplane and it they fired against it and it turned out to be a civilian plane and they were all killed um and so lockerbie comes just a few um a few months later than that and a lot of people thought oh this is this is iran getting back at this but uh there have been a lot of theories as to um what what happened in lockerbie you know was it was it iran pushing you know libya to do it uh, did Libya do it, but they put up two patsies to take take the blame for it? Um, or, and is the real person responsible, right? This is the subject of like the, the PBS Frontline documentary, My Brother's Bomber, right? Is the real person behind it? Is he still alive? And, you know, can, can we get out of him in Libya? But yeah, a lot of people, including families close to, close to Lockerbie, right, were not convinced that uh, Libya had the motive or the wherewithal to really, to really pull this off. Uh, but there is a French plane um, that is also blown up over the Sahara Desert, a uh, civilian passenger plane that is more, I think, more closely tied to Libya. But there you have a case where there are political figures on board that Libya wanted to get rid of. Oh, can you tell us more about this? We we have not discussed it. Yeah, so uh, very close to the events of Lockerbie, there's a there's a, um, a French civilian passenger plane that is is bombed over the the Sahara Desert. Um, and so part of the sanctions that were initially, um, well, these sanctions were sort of ramped up on Libya in the 1990s, and they're given a Security Council uh, blessing. So these become international sanctions on Libya. And it's it's not just Lockerbie, it's a, it's a French flight um, that's also involved there. And I think the evidence, at least in that case, was a little bit uh, clearer that there could have been a strong Libyan motivation and a wherewithal to do it. The Lockerbie, right, is a very, very sort of more complicated case. Um, and, you know, Syria, Iran, you know, Palestinians, right, there's, lot, there's lots of suspects there. 
in, in after the bombing, it's 2001. Al Megrahi uh, is convicted and sentenced to life in prison. And in 2003, Libya accepts responsibility for the bombing. Yeah. How did this affect or change U.S. relations and sanctions? Well, um, again, kind of like in the 1980s, the United States was looking for an easy win in the Middle East. Mm. Um, the uh, while the invasion of Afghanistan appeared to be going well at the time, and then the initial invasion of Iraq had been viewed as a conventional military success, the United States was already beginning to feel the heat from this irregular counterinsurgency terrorism warfare that was metastasizing in Iraq. So, um, all of a sudden, the situation in Libya presents itself as one in which um, Gaddafi has come forward and said, um, you know, we're really, uh, we're willing to um, make amends for this um, in terms of compensation without admitting responsibility, which is interesting. Um, and uh, we're also willing to um, basically give up all the information we have on chemical and nuclear weapons programs that we didn't really pursue very, very strongly <laughs> in the first place. Um, and so the Bush administration is given kind of this like, you know, prize where they can say, um, see, our, our deterrent strategy is bearing fruit. Libya has, you know, given up the goods on its weapons of mass destruction. And, you know, they're going to, you know, uh, compensate the, the Lockerbie families. Um, and so isn't this a great victory? Similar to how they sort of claimed victory in the uh, Sudan, South Sudan peace process at the same time, because the Sudanese regime had made a had made a calculation after the invasion of Iraq that they didn't want to be next, right? So they're like, okay, well, let's let's make peace with South Sudan and and that sort of thing. So the Bush administration, um, you know, is taking credit for the fact that, you know, on the one hand in Libya, these things were already in motion. The Gaddafi regime was desperate to get out from under the sanctions in the 1990s and was trying to find ways to cut a deal. But there was there was a lot of incentives, including at the level of like international oil politics to kind of keep Libya in check. Um, mm -mm. The, the biggest problem with oil in the 1990s was there was a huge glut and um, it was oil prices were incredibly depressed throughout the, the entire decade. Um, and so keeping Libya offline a little bit, you know, letting its industry uh, degrade and things like that, there was a lot of, there a lot of incentives in the system uh, to make that happen. Then after 2001, especially 2003, oil prices began to just skyrocket because of the instability in the Middle East. And so there's a sense uh, in which there are a lot of interests like British Petroleum and, you know, American companies who are like, we'd really like to get back into Libya now. <laughs> can, we, can we make that happen? Right. So if we do think that these companies uh, do have an ability to affect policy, particularly the Bush administration, you know, given the, the ties to oil through Halliburton and the vice president and the, the Bush family, right. Um, there was also this aspect as well, where it was it was it was time to bring Libya back in from the cold and and to get those those Libyan oil resources uh, up and running again. Because again, Libya has one of the highest quality oil reserves in the world, um, and it's it's easy to pump. It's got you know it's got a low break uh, break even price point and things like that. And then there's lots of unexplored natural gas, especially offshore. Now, before I ask you our final question. Um... I, is there something that you think that we should know that we haven't touched upon that would help us understand, uh, I guess, American world conflict at the time yeah. <laughs> that and, and why someone or some entity would want to attack the flight, uh, this flight that was carrying mostly U.S. nationals? Yeah, well, I mean, if um, I think it would be it would be great if a, a more neutral 
this is one of the problems with the Lockerbie investigation is there's a feeling that a lot of the investigators aren't really neutral in this sense, mm. um, you know, and that they all kind of have a stake in, in some way. So could there be like an international investigation that kind of looks looks back at this and looks looks back at the evidence? Um, again, there's been a lot of work that does suggest since, you know, since the, you know, Gaddafi regime collapsed in 2011 and re- looking at documents that became available and things like that, that Libya, Libya was actually involved um, in terms of what was going on. But uh, again, um, it would be, it'd be nice to have a, uh, an investigation that was maybe a little bit less uh, partisan, you know, like having, you know, having Scottish investigators, right, as you know, the lead or the FBI's lead, right? Could there be, could there be other investigators involved uh, to figure out what happened? But um, I mean, the, you know, um, the thing that, you know, always strikes me is that whether or not um, Libya was involved in Lockerbie, it's clear that Libya was used in many ways um, to, um, for, for basically for reasons that didn't have anything to do with Libya, right? So the Reagan administration wanted to prove that it could do something about the Middle East, and the easiest target was Libya. Mm. You know, uh, Obama wanted to look like he was doing something in 2011 in terms of the Arab Spring, and the easiest thing to do was to to militarily get involved in Libya, right? Um, whereas you know, there's no way they're going to intervene in, in the other cases, right? And Syria, Syria kind of proved this, like. You know, the U.S. Um, couldn't really commit heavily to Syria because they knew it would just be another Iraq war. So Libya has kind of um, sadly become this kind of plaything in the international community. And we especially see mm. it today with, um, you know, everyone's got their hands in the, the Libyan pie right now. Um, and it's, you know, it's just an intractable problem and horrible to mm. see what's happened. Okay, so we always asked our, our guest experts this question Uh Professor Mundy, at the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103. Who or what would that be? Wow, that's a that's a good question. Um, I would hmm, let me think about that. What would I what would I blame? Um, it could be a concept again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I I I think. Part of I think the concept that most comes to mind is the concept of terrorism, and I think um, over the past fifty years we've increasingly began to view political struggles and violence, particularly those that emanate from the Middle East, through a kind of framework of terrorism, which has this inherently depoliticizing sort of thing. We tend to think about oh, what was what is the psychology of terrorists? You know, are they are they frustrated? young men or are they mad mullahs or you know um gaddafi are they just you know narcissists and things like that we don't think about like the broader historical social economic relations that uh produce these kinds of situations you know um why what why would you know someone do what they do right we label it terrorism and therefore that gives us a license to eliminate it uh uh, uh often with you know, often with lethal violence, right? So I think we've become, unfortunately, um, seduced by this idea of terrorism, and now it, it clouds our judgment and inhibits um, understanding what's really going on in the world. Well, Professor Mundy, thank you so much for helping us understand this very complicated, it's 
hard to understand, but you put it so clearly. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, great question. It's great to be with you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. With us today, we have producer Alex Paul. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Alex. And of thank you for helping us find Professor Mundy, who uh, just brought so much clarity yeah. to yeah. all of this. Yeah, someone who um, every week I have a couple hours to learn about like 17th century Paris, and then the next week is like. 1980s Libya and then the next week is like diet culture I'm so jealous of him (laughs) being able to really just know about Libya because he really does I'm like oh yeah this is when you have the time to just learn about one one thing you know one field of of expertise and and also put it into the broad into a broader context right it's like, how does everything around Libya affect Libya? Which is like, oh, yeah, it's wow. huge. I mean, there's so many different world events, especially learning about the way that Libya has been sort of like when he, he referred to it as a plaything amongst like the big yeah. power players like the United States and the Soviet Union and stuff. I, you see that a lot with the s- smaller countries. I know that's come up with like, 
I'm pretty sure um, like Cuba or Chile or, you know, yeah. smaller countries that are just like used for um, bigger reasons. And because of it, they have to deal with like sanctions and all sorts of like messy stuff that ravages their country. Yeah. yeah. Just another word about Professor Monday. You have to have a lot of confidence about a subject to write a book that's just called Libya, right? <laughs> like his book was just Libya. It was the that's co- right. And and to your point, Alex, I was just thinking if I had to pick a subject that I had to write a book about that could just be like the name of the thing, mm-hmm. probably just ha- probably the only thing I'd probably do is my dog Bronco. It'd probably have to be called Bronco, <laughs> and then I could write. Think I could confidently write a book about everything having to do with Bronco and be the sort of expert on it. Mm-hmm. Anyway. That's that's how much. He knows about Libya, Chris. Right. He, Wrap your mind around that. What Professor Mundy knows about <laughs> Libya, I know about my dog. That's about it. Um, but no, I thought it was fa- just totally, exactly. He's providing all that context uh, for this. At, at that, that sort of was the backdrop of this event um, was fascinating and um, I don't know what I wrote down some stuff. What did you write down, Alex? Because we take notes during these. Uh... I was looking at your notes, Chris, and it looked like most of your notes are that your cousin <laughs> is. Oh, right. The assistant <laughs> hockey coach at yeah, Colgate, which is where he's a professor. So yes. thank you for. Colgate, <laughs> Colgate University is in uh, Hamilton, New York, and my cousin moved up there a couple of years ago to be the assistant hockey coach on the women's hockey team my cousin Steph Dacos he uh and so I was trying to figure out a way for you to um use that Rebecca as sort well, of like leverage I thought, to get the real scoop on Libya what I would but I, it, I didn't really <laughs> present an opportunity to do that I would love to uh be I don't know, maybe the third wheel to Stefan, you know, hockey coach Stefan and uh, <laughs> Professor Mundy, yeah. gra- like grabbing a beer yeah. at a local I'm going to try and make pub. that happen. I'm going to try and make that happen. Um, I was like furiously writing notes about like Reagan administration. <laughs> right, right. The ideological delusion hey. about the Soviet Union. And then Chris Look, is just like, oh, I my cousin, I got to reach out. Man. <laughs> I was a little distracted, Alex. Okay, you don't have to put me on blast on the for the entire alarmy. Okay, they, look, odds are the alarmy already know. They come, knew. Come Those on, the I'm notes. the fact checker. I do put it into a lower gear when Alex is around. I will admit that I do, but I'm still paying some attention. Uh, I do hear Reagan ruin. I, I see here Reagan ruins everything. I don't know who wrote that. Oh, I wrote that. <laughs> myself (laughs) what was crazy was i don't know how do you want to start the discussion he talked about start the discussion no i yeah i I just mean there were so many interesting things but i don't know the one that stuck out to me was like how the u.s perspective just shifted based on our needs like political Mm -hmm. need like Mm -hmm. internal political needs like you know you think about they wanted an easy win you know, at the early stages, they picked a soft target like Libya. Okay, we can go and do something there. Uh, they wanted an easy win in the in the uh, Middle East. And then you think about the trial and how Professor Mundy said the trial was perceived as a win for the Bush administration. Like, regardless of the truth of right. whether this person uh, was 
entirely responsible or not. It was just sort of like, it just, it was just weird how the, our history is, is, or our facts are just filtered by our interests. It just became very evident to me in this discussion. You know what? Go on, Alex. No, you go on. (laughs) No, Alex. You go on. You're the one who said you took the scrupulous notes. <laughs> I trust me. I, I want to hear. I, I was just going to say what I'm scared of. So you, you please, please. Oh, we want to. We want to know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just. Uh, what's scary to me is thinking about a trial and what we perceive as you know justice being served. Really, just having political implications. You know, just being used to um you know politicize a an uh, an administration yeah it's like and that is really scary to me because when i think about the law and when i think about when i put myself in the place of someone who might be put on trial i would hope that (laughs) facts and (laughs) just facts are what are you know presented and what people are rooting for even Right. Like, let's find out the truth. But boy, is that not the case. And that's so terrifying. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the um, the sanctions were lifted from Libya during a time when the uh, when oil prices had raised a lot. Right. So they it was mostly about like, oh, we don't have access to Libya because we've put up all these sanctions. Let's like arrange for the um, Libyan government to issue like a weird sort of apology, non-apology. And then we can be like, oh, thank you. We're going to lift the sanctions and now we can like use your oil. And yes. And and then on the other hand, when I think about myself as a loved one of someone who went through a terrible tragedy and I think of the trial that is supposedly going to find the truth about who did this to my loved one. Right, I would some. hope that it's the truth right. and not just like, eh, don't worry about it. Trust me, it was it was them, yep. you know? So it's a tragedy on so many levels. And I know that the families have been, were very upset that it was a non-apology, that it was like, we will accept responsibility without showing remorse or showing a you know um sadness or like fully taking responsibility i I know that that's been like something that the families have really struggled with i can imagine i mean that's all i mean of course it's like when someone's like i'm sorry that you feel like i (laughs) that's exactly what it is um, the worst apology. It's an apology without accountability. It, it is. Ugh. It's the worst thing to hear. It provides no. It's not satisfying at all. Can we it's remove that from apology like vocabulary? We need a new word. I'm sorry you feel like just don't start with that. Or at least we don't call it an apology. We can call it something else. Yes, it's a cop out, is what it is. But we need to call it like a apology. Sidestep. It's a total sidestep. Side yes. Not cool. okay. One yeah. other thing I was thinking of is that came up in my research and he brought it up again too is like when the united states bombs civilian um people like that plane he talked about right um it's always uh 
reported as a mistake, but when like Middle right. Eastern countries bomb civilians, it's always terrorism. terrorism. And I just feel like that is such obnoxious reporting because yep. it can't mm. always be a mistake. Or even if it is a mistake, it's like you, well, then you did a bad job. Like you didn't, you sh- maybe should not have pulled the trigger. But it's always a mistake when yep. the US does it. It's mm. so true. And I think it plays perfectly into the uh, the comments that uh, Professor Monday talked about at the end of his interview there where he was talking about the framework of terrorism and the word terrorism, right? Where we, mm-hmm. he was talking about basically, you know, this is a term that just doesn't, basically it's a catch-all phrase and it, and it, and it disincentivizes you from like determining what the motive was, right? Mm. You're just like, terrorism is what happened here the people who did it are a certain type of people because we were using that word and uh, don't think about why it's right. not important to us. So he ended up sending terrorism to the alarmist jail. Yep. And so did we, I can't believe it. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I mean, it's crazy. Um, Cause, because this was such a hard one to, figure out what we thought was really at the root of it um, because of all of the uh, outside, you know, the, the, the broader context of everything that was going on. So it was like, so what was it? Was it, what was it the Libyan uh, government? Was it the, the Iranian Palestinian conflict? Like we, we didn't know. And I think the way he put it was, it was it, it 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 was potent, right? Cause it's, yeah, it's like you have terrorism word that is like terrorism is bad when you attack civilians, and also that just using the term terrorism doesn't allow for us to examine these events in a way that is like where we can get to the root cause of what causes them. It it, it doesn't allow you to take context into consideration. It doesn't allow you to take you know these broader political implications into into uh consideration so i think it's like kind of like terrorism on in two there's like two meanings of the word and both are something we really need to sort of address it doesn't yeah agreed i think it's like nice that it encapsulates i think i said that wrong but encapsulates maybe it's just my little (laughs) lisp but um like two different meanings of terrorism it's the actual terrorism and how we also approach it in in the same way that i think about like you know the way people talk about like looting like once people are looting it's like that's all it is right it's like well there's like wage theft there's so many other ways like more like covert ways that um hurt people and hurt countries and hurt systems that maybe aren't as like um don't have like the explosion of a bomb but are just as detrimental and terrorism can be approached um from a place of yeah the looking at the broader um reasons for why this is happening and the conflicts and that it's not just like they're terrorists and they're crazy and that's right. it right it's it's like the other you know we need to also look at the broader implications as well, um, aside from the actual terrorism, which right. is definitely a thing. Right. Um, so I feel like 
what did we end up giving the slap to, Alex? Do we gave the slap to the individuals? Right. Yes. um, The three men who were tried for like creating the bomb and placing the bomb. Right. Okay. So yes. So the the, it was the two men and then the one that came out after 2011. Yes. Okay. So I think that's fine. I think we can leave that for me. I, what do you guys think? I think we can leave that with a big slap. We we kind of don't change anything for this one. Yeah, shocking, shockingly. Um, I think we nailed it. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked, uh, but okay. So that that feels good. Uh, thank you, Professor Mundy, for um, basically giving us a doctor. I mean, like I, I mean, think we are. Um, what is it when you get like a degree just by? Like you get a degree for no other reason because besides you're famous. Uh, I was. I, I think it's a. Uh, you mean like a, an honorary degree? honorary degree? Okay. Yeah, we got a Colgate honorary degree. I don't know. Alarmist. So I don't know about that. I was just gonna say he gave us a master class. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> he did a good job too. Th- but like, we why did are really you making it about you? You you want an honorary degree? Yeah. I'm disturbed by <laughs> okay. how many honorary degrees Chris thinks he has. If that, <laughs> if this counts as one, we. Yeah. After every aftermath, he, he adds it to his resume. <laughs> I, yeah. I take out my crayons. I kind of draw out a little sort of sash for myself and I hang it up in my yeah, little we have, honorary degree he closet. He has a graduation every yeah. week. All right. So stay tuned because next week we're going to be discussing the Kitty Genovese murder. Erios. Powered by ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.